podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily and I'm Rebecca and today we have a bumper special of (laughs) bookish goodness for you, even more so than normal. This is an episode packed with stories and words and like books about books. So yeah, if you're looking for some real infatuated goodness, you're going to get some today. Strap in. Yeah. (laughs) So, what are you infatuated with? I am infatuated with The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex E. Harrell. That is a pretty book. It's so pretty. So, I did actually mention this book on our Christmas special, Mm -hmm. but I was purposefully very vague about the plot on that episode because I knew I'd be talking about it today. Nice. Um, So basically, this came out 2019, and the reason I first picked it up is because of a line in the blurb which says, when she finds a strange book, one that tells a tale of secret doors, of love, adventure and danger, for the first time January realises she can escape her story and sneak into someone else's. Mm. Um, And that reminded me of The Starless Sea, and because they both came out in the same year, I was curious to see if like they were remotely similar and the answer is they are they're very different books plot wise but there is a similarity in the way that like books and stories and like adventure is talked about um and i'd say some of the language and the writing style kind of scratches that itch if you really like morgan Stern style and want to read things like in that kind of vein mm. But this is, episode isn't about the Starless Sea, so I'm going to move on. Because um, it's, it's, this is a book that is very brilliant in its own right. So the novel begins in New England in the early 1900s. Um, it's about a young woman called January, who is the ward of Mr Locke and lives in his big manor full of curiosities. And it's January's father who travels to bring Mr Locke all of these artefacts. Um, But towards the start of this book, he's gone missing and is presumed dead. But January doesn't think he's dead. And then one day, she finds a book in the manor called The Ten Thousand Doors. So this novel has January's narration and the narration of the character who wrote The Ten Thousand Doors. So the book's written by a character called Yule. But even though I'm going to read out his narration I don't want to go into too much detail about who he is because I don't know I think it's it's quite easy to work out who it is and it doesn't spoil it to know who it is but I found it very satisfying the way it was revealed so I'm not going to ruin it for anyone I'm already Um, obsessed with every single name that you've mentioned yes I know I have a lot to say about the names (laughs) later on (laughs) So yeah, this book is also about doors. Doors that can lead to other worlds and it's through these doors that January decides to journey to find her father. And the passage that I read out on our Christmas special was about some of the like very fantastical worlds that you can find behind these doors. Mm. Um, so you can listen back to that if you want refreshed on that. You should, it was good. Thank you. But today I wanted to begin by reading the very beginning. Uh, where January introduces us to this idea of enchanted doors. When I was seven, I found a door. 
I suspect I should capitalise that word so you understand I'm not talking about your garden or common variety door that leads reliably to a white tiled kitchen or a bedroom closet. When I was seven, I found a door. There. Look how tall and proud the word stands on the page now, the belly of that D like a black archway leading into white nothing. When you see that word, I imagine a little prickle of familiarity makes the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. You don't know a thing about me. You can't see me sitting at this yellow wood desk, the salt sweet breeze riffling these pages like a reader looking for her bookmark. You can't see the scars that twist and knot across my skin. You don't even know my name. It's January Scholar, so now I suppose you do know a little something about me and I've ruined my point. But you know what it means when you see the word door. Maybe you've even seen one for yourself, standing half ajar and rotted in an old church, or oiled and shining in a brick wall. Maybe, if you're one of those fanciful persons who find their feet running toward unexpected places, you've even walked through one and found yourself in a very unexpected place indeed. Or maybe you've never so much as glimpsed a door in your life. There aren't as many of them as there used to be. But you still know about doors, don't you? Because there are 10,000 stories about 10,000 doors, and we know them as well as we know our names. They lead to Fairy, to Valhalla, Atlantis and Lemuria, heaven and hell, to all the directions a compass could never take you, to elsewhere. My father, who is a true scholar and not just a young lady with an ink pen and a series of things she has to say, puts it much better. If we address stories as archaeological sites and dust through their layers with meticulous care, we find at some level there is always a doorway. A dividing point between here and there, us and them, mundane and magical. It is at the moments when the doors open, when things flow between the worlds, that stories happen. He never capitalised doors, but perhaps scholars don't capitalise words just because of the shapes they make on the page. It was the summer of 1901, although the arrangement of four numbers in a page didn't mean that much to me then. I think of it now as a swaggering, full-of-itself sort of year, shining with the gold-plated promises of a new century. It had shed all the mess and fuss of the 19th century, all those wars and revolutions and uncertainties, all those imperial growing pains, and now there was nothing but peace and prosperity wherever one looked. Mr J.P. Morgan had recently become the richest man in the entire history of the world. Queen Victoria had finally expired and left her vast empire to her kingly-looking son. Those unruly boxers had been subdued in China, and Cuba had been tucked neatly beneath America's civilised wing. Reason and rationality reigned supreme, and there was no room for magic or mystery. There was no room, it turned out, for little girls who wandered off the edge of the map and told the truth about the mad, impossible things they found there. I love that line about just a girl with ink in her fingers and things to say or something about that. Something yes, like that. that's good. It's like an ink, an ink pen or something. Yeah. Where is it? A young lady with an ink pen and a series of things she has to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I enjoyed that. So yeah, I hope that made sense, despite it being like about the visual of writing. But I feel like everyone can picture what a capital D yeah. <laughs> looks like. It makes um, sense to me and I'm not reading it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think this is such a great way to start a book that is very overtly in love with writing. And I also think like 
especially with that last line that you see how much of an adventure you're about to go on because mm. this is quite a wild book and that magic just kind of happens and you just kind of have to roll with it and be like oh okay <laughs> sure but that's like what makes it fun and yeah as I said this book is about books and words as much as it is about doors and worlds a lot of the magic that you see in the book is actually written down um, so you have like a really cool through line of words being powerful mm. throughout the book but what I also love is that January just loves books like she just loves reading so here is the moment that January finds the copy of the 10,000 doors I was turning away letting the lid of the chest fall when I realized there was something else still inside a book a smallish, leather-bound book with scuffed corners and with dented imprints where the gold-stamped title had been partially scraped off. The Ten Thou Ors. I riffled the pages with one thumb. Those of you who are more than casually familiar with books, those of you who spend your free afternoons in fisty bookshops, who offer furtive, kindly strokes along the spines of familiar titles, understand that paid trifling is an essential element in the process of introducing oneself to a new book. It isn't about reading the words, it's about reading the smell, which wafts from the pages in a cloud of dust and wood pulp. It might smell expensive and well-bound, or it might smell of tissue-thin paper and blurred two-colour prints, or of fifty years unread in the home of a tobacco-smoking old man. Books can smell of cheap thrills or painstaking scholarship, of literary weight or unsolved mysteries. This one smelled unlike any book I'd ever held. Cinnamon and coal smoke, catacombs and loam, damp seaside evenings and sweat-slick noontimes beneath palm fronds. It smelled as if it had been in the mail for longer than any one parcel could be, circling the world for years and accumulating layers of smells like a tramp wearing too many clothes. It smelled like adventure itself had been harvested in the wild, distilled to a fine wine and splashed across each page. But I'm stumbling ahead of myself. Stories are supposed to be told in order, with beginnings and middles and ends. I'm no scholar, but I know that much. That's so weird, because I was literally about to say before you started that passage, that book has got a really satisfying graininess on its pages when you look at it. That makes it look older than what it is. That is true. I enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, thinking that looks like it smells good. <laughs> it does smell quite good. It's also a floppy book. Yes, we love a floppy book. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just like the detail of that passage of it being like a self-aware story that she's like, oh, I need to remind myself to tell it in order instead of skipping ahead. Mm. the adventure and I also love that line about like the wine Mm. that feels like a very Morgan Stern image in my mind but yeah now I want to turn to Yule the narrator of this book that January finds so I'm going to explain the lead up to this moment Mm -hmm. um which I don't think is a spoiler so Yule once stumbled through a door and met Adelaide who goes by Aid they realised they were from different worlds but quickly fell for each other and then they both decided to meet again. He goes back through the door but when Aid comes back to that spot the next day the door has been destroyed. So How um, was this not... How was this written at the same time as Starless Sea? I know, it's weird, isn't it? That's a weird It is detail. really weird. <laughs> so on either side of this destroyed door they both 
decides to find a way to each other again. Yule turns to research, he decides to become a scholar and dedicate his life to researching and writing about these doors to figure out how they work, to figure out like how to find the right one mm. to find her. Um, Adelaide just starts searching for doors and heading through them. <laughs> what a vibe. Yeah. And amazingly, they do find each other. They find each other again. Yay. So this passage, which I'm going to butcher slightly because I'm basically just going to skip some parts, um, is the aftermath of them being reunited after, I think it's 12 years. So the bits I'm skipping are them discussing like how the doors work. It's really, really interesting, but I'm slightly worried that it won't make sense without All like the, the world building and everything. So basically, I've just singled out the like relationshipy bits. So we're just getting some cute story. <laughs> so this is chapter four of the Ten Thousand Doors. It's a chapter called "On Love," and this subheading is "Love Takes Root, Love Takes to the Sea: The Simultaneously Predictable and Miraculous Results of Love." <laughs> oh. It is fashionable among intellectuals and sophisticates to scoff at true love, to pretend it is nothing but a sweet fairy tale sold to children and young women, to be taken seriously as magic wands or glass slippers. There's also a footnote at that point that says, I hope you are sufficiently familiar with the nature of doors by this juncture to assume that both magic wands and glass slippers exist in plentitude in some world or other. (laughs) I feel nothing but pity for these learned persons because they would not say such foolish things if they had ever experienced love for themselves. I wish they could have been present at the meeting of Yule Ian and Adelaide Lee in 1893. No one watching their bodies crash together in the waist-deep surf, watching their eyes glow like lighthouses leading stray ships home at last, could have denied the presence of love. It hung between them like a tiny sun, radiating heat, remaking their faces in red and gold. But even I must admit that love is not always graceful. After Aid and Yule peeled themselves apart, they were left standing in the waves, staring at the perfect stranger before them. What do you say to a woman you had met only once in a hayfield in another world? What do you say to a ghost boy whose boot-leather eyes have haunted you for twelve years? I'm going to skip ahead of it. I'm going to interrupt you. Tiny sun. Tiny sun. Boot leather eyes. Mm. Oh my god. Yep. Carry on. (laughs) Once we've agreed that true love exists, we may consider its nature. It is not as many misguided poets would have you believe an event in and of itself. It's not something that happens, but something that simply is and always has been. One does not fall in love, one discovers it. It was this archaeological process that so occupied Aid and Yule during their days in the washerwoman's room. They discovered their love first through the strange and miraculous language of the body, through skin and cinnamon sweat, the pink-edged creases left by rumpled sheets, the deltas of veins charting the backs of their hands. To Yule it was an entirely new language. To Aid it was like relearning a language she thought she already knew. But soon spoken words filtered into the spaces between them, through the underwater heat of the humid afternoons and into the relief of the cool nights. They told one another twelve years of stories. Aid told her story first, and it was a thrilling confabulation of starlit train rides and foot-worn journeys, of leaving and coming, of doors standing slantwise in the dusk, half open. 
Yule found he couldn't listen to her without a pen in his hand, as if she were an archival scroll sprung to life, which he had to document before she vanished. She finished with the story of Mount Silver Heels and the door to the sea, and only laughed when Yule pressed her for details and dates and specifics. That's exactly the kind of nonsense that ruins a good yarn. No, sir, about time you told me your story, don't you think? He lay on his stomach on the cool stone floor, legs tangled in sheets and forearms smeary with ink. My story is your story, I think, he shrugged. How do you mean? I mean, that day in the field changed me just as it changed you. Both of us have spent our lives seeking out the secrets of doors, haven't we? Following stories and myths. Yule laid his head on his arm and looked up at the golden sprawl of her in his cot. Except my quest involved much more time in libraries. He told her about his dreamy childhood and dedicated youth, his respected scholarly publications, which never directly asserted the existence of doors but merely presented them as mythological constructions offering valuable social insights, his unending quest to discover the truest nature of the doors between worlds. And then again, just going to skip ahead a little bit, this is my last my last one. It took another generous handful of days before Aidan and Yule could simply lie still and quiet beside one another in the cot without the frenzied need to know one another. They had unearthed the rough shape of the love between them and were content to let the rest of it proceed more sedately, unfurling like an endless sea before their prow. To Aid it was a kind of homecoming. After years of rootless wandering, years of drifting down the subtle trails of stories with a restless ache in her heart, she found herself at last content to be still. To Yule, it was a departure. He'd lived his life within the comforting confines of research and scholarship, driven to pursue his studies with single-minded fervour, rarely looking up toward the horizon. But now he found himself adrift, unmoored. What did his studies matter now? What were the mysteries of doors compared to the far grander mystery of Aid's long white heat stretched beside him? What do we do now? He asked her one morning. Oh, it's so good! I know! <laughs> I love that because I totally can see both of those emotions. Like, I, I love that. It's very the whole of the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I, I don't have much to say about his quotes. I just love... Well, first of all, I love that Yule sets out to write an academic paper and instead writes this love story. <laughs> um, and my point, kind of what you just said there, is like, I don't tend to read what you'd call like a typical romance novel, mm. but I love a love story like this where the emotions feel so real and you know exactly how they're feeling, but it's like a magical setting. Yeah. So yeah, I just love them. Like, that idea of, like, the departure and the homecoming. Yeah. And I know exactly how both of those feel. Same. Like, oh. Oh, so good. That is so good. <laughs> so, to begin wrapping up, I wanted to do something a little different and just share, like, some small snippets and lines that I couldn't really find a place for, mm -hmm. but that I just really wanted to share anyway. And I actually quite liked doing this, so I might do this more often, just find, like, out-of-context quotes. So this is a little paragraph about novels. This feels very season one. Yes. I, I like this. <laughs> but a more grown-up, sober-sounding voice reminded me that The Ten Thousand Doors was just a novel and that novels are untrustworthy advisors. 
They aren't concerned with rationality or sobriety. They pedal in tragedy and suspense, in chaos and rule-breaking, in madness and heartache, and they will steer you towards such things with all the guile of a piper luring rats into a river. <laughs> Does that make you feel powerful as yeah. a <laughs> Can someone who can draw please draw Emily as a piper followed by rats? <laughs> This is a little passage about Yule and his decision to like, dedicate himself to a life of researching these doors. Okay. <laughs> but doors, you will recall, are change. The Yule who left the arch that night was therefore a somewhat different Yule from the one who had found it three days previously. Something new thudded in his chest alongside his heart, as if a separate organ had suddenly come pumping to life. It had an urgent, driving rhythm which Yule could not fail to notice even through his misery. He pondered it as he lay in his narrow bed that night, listening to the disgruntled sounds of his siblings falling back to sleep after being woken by his return. It did not feel like despair or loss or loneliness. It reminded him most of the feeling he had sometimes in the archives when a scrap of writing written on an ancient vellum pulled him onward, deeper, until he lost himself in a spiralling trail of stories. But even that was nothing compared to the thrumming urgency he now felt. He fell asleep worrying vaguely that he'd developed some sort of murmur in his heart. The following morning he'd recognised it as something much more serious. The discovery of his life's purpose. Nice. It's a cute one. Can't relate, but I love that for him. <laughs> this is a little quote about worlds. These doors of yours are meant to stay closed, I'm afraid. No, they aren't. Worlds were never meant to be prisons, locked and suffocating and safe. Worlds were supposed to be great rambling houses with all the windows thrown open and the wind and summer rain rushing through them with magic passages in their closets and secret treasure chests in their attics. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. This is one about that feeling of writing in a new notebook. <laughs> I sit at this yellow wood desk with a pen in my hand and a stack of cotton pages lying in wait, so clean and perfect that every word is a sin, a footstep in fresh fallen snow. That's so right, but yeah. I kind of love it. I used to hate writing in notebook, new notebooks, and yeah. now I like... No, I, I like it, yeah. And this is my last one. This is my favourite quote in the whole book. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> Aid nestled into the softness of his arm and thought about happily ever afters and sweet-tasting endings. Yule thought about once upon a times and bold beginnings. Oh, It's so cute. <laughs> So yeah, there we go. That is the 10,000 Doors of January. I really loved this one. I often call it the Starless Sea a love letter to books and I feel like this kind of fits that descriptor as well. I also like that it's that because it's a historical setting, Harold gets to talk about like these young women, like January and Adelaide, like breaking rules and convention because obviously they're meant to be like proper young ladies. Mm. Um, and instead they both get to go on the adventures that they'd have only read in boys' books. Yeah. Um, I just think that's, like, a nice detail. Um, there's also such a good dog in this book. He's called Bad. <gasps> and he is the goodest boy. I love him. <laughs> a dog called Bad. He's called Bad. Yeah. That's such a good name. I know. Dog. 
<laughs> so yeah, there's so much like magic and plot that I've barely touched on, um, but I hope I've made it sound worth reading because it definitely is. And yeah, I have another of Alex E. Harrell's books that I got for Christmas, so I'm excited to read more of her writing. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I love the whole, like, I was thinking when you were reading those out about, like, books and doors and he said something about a door's change. Yes, doors are change. And it reminded me, I'm going to butcher this, but when I did that poetry workshop last year with Sabrina Benham, mm-hmm. she said this thing that it took me ages to, like, get because it was one of those things, you know, like, when a creative writing teacher says something and you're like bitch, I don't know what fuck you're talking about. And then later you're writing and you're like, oh, that was it. Okay. She was talking about how when you're writing a poem, there's always a door opening or a door closing. Mm -hmm. And like most poems have a discovery in them, which I got got that. Like that's like the turning point or the bit where you discover what it's about. Yeah. But like, and so that should be there for the reader, but it should also be there for the writer. Like when you're drafting, you usually find the discovery and you didn't know that you were going to find it. Right, okay, yeah. But I didn't get what she meant by, like, the doors opening and the door closing, but she was saying that, like, a lot of the time a really well-put-together poem knows that it's going to close all the doors that are opened, but it'll maybe leave one open at the end. Oh. So, like, if you... Like, a door opening would be, like a, like, a metaphor, and then if you open all these doors to all these different kind of like narratives or whatever yeah but your language should kind of close them or resolve them by the end unless you decide to leave them open right okay i get you but it took me so long to work that metaphor out yeah i was actually right until i was actually writing yeah and then you reading those like extracts Mm. i was like but that's what stories are that's the point yeah it's like it's about the doors that you leave open and the doors that you shut Mm mm-hmm so, Sabrina, if you listen to this, I get it now. <laughs> like, it took me ages, but I feel like I get it. And if I didn't get it, please don't tell me. Because <laughs> I feel like I've, I've learned something. Well, I feel like you've at least got it in a way that makes is sense helpful to me. and makes sense to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alright, so what are you infatuated with? I am infatuated this week with another book that is a love letter to books and mm. reminded me of the Starless Sea, oh, wow. which is why I wanted to tell you about it. There we go. The book is Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for All the Light We Cannot See, which, which I just read and is amazing. <laughs> I've not read it yet. Um, this is the first, this is his latest novel, um, Cloud Cuckoo Land. It was released in 2021. But I've not read anything by him before. And so I had no expectations. Yeah. And they were still exceeded. Yeah. Well, that's how I felt about All the Light We Cannot See, so... It was amazing. doing something right. <laughs> um, I've not seen, like, such a feat of threading, like, plot, themes, character structures and genres. Genres. Mm. In years, except maybe The Starless Sea comes close. But I still think this does more things. Uh-huh than the Starless Sea, which is a lot to say. So I'm going to launch in with a wee passage without telling you the plot, because I think that this sums up the main themes of the book. So this, I'll just give you a tiny bit of context. This is a part of the story from the point of view of Anna, who is a young Greek girl in Constantinople in the 1400s. Okay. She's heard a tutor getting boys in a schoolroom to chant a song about the Odyssey. Right. And she wants to know the end of the story. Okay. Will you teach me? 
I know some signs already. I know the one that's like two pillars with a rod between, and the one that's like gallows, and the one that's like an ox head upside down. With an index finger in the mud at his feet, she draws an A. The man raises his gaze to the rain. Where his eyeballs should be white, they are yellow. Girls don't go to tutors, and you don't have any money. She lifts a jug from the cart. I have wine. He comes alert. One arm reaches for the jug. First, she says, a lesson. You'll never learn it. She does not budge. The old teacher groans. With the end of his stick in the wet dirt, he writes, Okinos. Okinos, ocean, eldest son of sky and earth. He draws a circle around it and pokes its centre. Hear the known. Then he pokes the outside. Hear the unknown. Now the wine. She passes it to him and he drinks with both hands. She crouches on her heels. Okinos, seven marks in the mud. And yet they contain the lonely traveller in the brass-walled palace with its golden watchdogs and the goddess with her mist. For returning late, Widow Theodora beats the sole of Anna's left foot with the bastidando. For returning with one of the jugs half empty, she beats the right. Ten strokes on each. Anna hardly cries. Half the night she inscribes letters across the surface of her mind and all the following day as she hobbles up and down the stairs, as she carries water, as she fetches eels for Christ the cook, she sees the island kingdom of Alcinius, wreathed with clouds and blessed by the west wind, teeming with apples, pears and olives, blue figs and red pomegranates, boys of gold on shining pedestals with burning torches in their hands. Two weeks later, she is coming back from the market, going out of her way to pass the rooming house, when she spies the goitrous tutor sitting in the sun like a potted plant. She sets down her basket of onions and with a finger in the dust writes, Okinos. Around it, she draws a circle. Eldest son of sky and earth, hear the known, hear the unknown. The man strains his head from one side and swivels his gaze to her as though seeing her for the first time, and the wet in his eye catches the light. His name is Licinius. Before his misfortunes, he says, he served as a tutor to a wealthy family in a city to the west, and he owned six books and an iron box to hold them, two lives of the saints, a book of orations by Horace, a testament of the miracles of St Elizabeth, a primer on Greek grammar, and Homer's Odyssey. But then the Saracens captured his town, and he fled to the capital with nothing, and thanked the angels in heaven for the city walls whose foundation stones were laid by the mother of God herself. From inside his coat, Licinius produces three mottled bundles of parchment. Ulysses, he says, was once a general in the greatest army ever assembled, whose legions came from Hermine. Oh, Jesus, so many Greek names here. <laughs> from Dilichium, from the walled cities of Knossos and Gorton, from the farthest reaches of the sea, and they crossed the ocean in a thousand black ships to sack the fabled city of Troy, and from each ship spilled a thousand warriors as innumerable. Licinius says as the leaves in the trees, or as the flies that swarm over buckets of warm milk in shepherd's stalls. For ten years they sieged Troy, and after they finally took it, the weary legions sailed home, and all arrived safely except Ulysses. The entire song of his journey home, Licinius explains, consisted of twenty-four books, one for each letter of the alphabet, and took several days to recite, but all Licinius has left are these three choirs, each containing a half dozen pages relating sections where Ulysses leaves the cave of Calypso, is broken by a storm, 
and washes up naked on the island of Scaria, home of brave Alcinius, lord of the Phaeacians. There was a time, he continues, when every child in the empire knew every player in Ulysses' story. But long before Anna was born, Latin crusaders from the west burned the city, killing thousands and stripping away much of his wealth. Then plagues halved the population and halved it again, and the empress at the time had to sell her crown to Venice to pay her garrisons, and the current emperor wears a crown made of glass and can hardly afford the plates he eats from, and now the city limps through a long twilight, waiting for the second coming of Christ, and no one has time for the old stories anymore. Anna's attention remains fixed on the leaves in front of her. So many words. It would take seven lifetimes to learn them all. Every time Christ the cook sends Anna to the market, the girl finds a reason to visit Licinius. She brings him crusts of bread, a smoked fish, half a hoop of thrushes. Twice she manages to steal a jug of Caliphatus's wine. In return, he teaches. A is Alpha, B is Beta, Omega is Omega. <laughs> as she sweeps the workroom floor, as she lugs another roll of fabric or another bucket of charcoal, as she sits in the workroom beside Maria, fingers numb, breath pluming over the silk, as she practices her letters on the thousand blank pages of her mind. Each sign signifies a sound, and to link sounds is to form words, and to link words is to construct worlds. Weary Ulysses sets forth upon his raft from the cave of Calypso. The spray of the ocean wets his face. The shadow of the sea god, kelp streaming from his blue hair, flashes beneath the surface. You fill your head with useless things, whispers Maria. But knotted chain stitches, cable chain stitches, petal chain stitches, Anna will never learn it. Her most consistent skill with a needle seems to be accidentally pricking her fingertip and bleeding onto the cloth. Her sister says she should imagine the holy men who will perform the divine mysteries wearing the vestments she helped decorate, but Anna's mind is constantly veering off to islands on the fringe of the sea, where sweet springs run and goddesses streak down from the clouds upon beams of light. Saints help me, says Widow Theodora, will you ever learn? Anna is old enough to understand the precariousness of their situation. She and Maria have no family, no money. They belong to no one and maintain their place in the house of Caliphates only because of Maria's talent with a needle. The best life either of them can hope for is to sit at one of these tables, embroidering crosses and angels and foliage into copes and chalice veils and chasubles from dawn until dusk until their spines are humped and their eyes give out. Monkey. Mosquito. Hopeless, yet she cannot stop. One word at a time. Once more she studies the muddle of marks on the parchment. I can't. You can. Aota are cities. Vove is the mind. E view is learned. She says... He saw the cities of many men and learned their ways. The mass on Licinius's neck quakes as his mouth curls into a smile. That's it. That's it exactly. Almost overnight the streets glow with meaning. She reads inscriptions on coins, on cornerstones and tombstones, on lead seals and buttress piers and marble plaques embedded into the defensive walls, each twisting lane of the city a great battered manuscript in its own right. Words glow on the chip rim of a plate Christ the cook keeps beneath the hearth. Zoe the most pious. Over the entrance to a little forgotten chapel, peace be to thee who ever interest with a gentle heart. 
Her favourite is chiselled into the lintel above the watchman's door beside St Theophano's gate, and it takes her half of a Sunday to puzzle out. Stop ye thieves, robbers, murderers, horsemen and soldiers, in all humility, for we have tasted the rosy blood of Jesus. The last time Anna sees Licinius, a cold wind is blowing, and his complexion is the colour of a rainstorm. His eyes leak, the bread she has brought him remains untouched, and the goiter on his neck seems a more sinister creature entirely, inflamed and florid, as though tonight it will devour his face at last. Today, he says, they will work on mythos, which means a conversation or something said, but also a tale or a story, a legend from the time of the old gods, and he is explaining how a delicate, mutable word it can suggest something false and something true at the same time, when his attention frees. The wind lifts one of the choirs from his fingers and Anna chases it down and brushes it off and returns it to his lap. Licinius rests his eyelids a long time. Repository, he finally says. You know this word? A resting place. A text, a book, is a resting place for the memories of people who have lived before a way for the memory to stay fixed after the soul has travelled on. His eyes open very widely then, as though he peers into a great darkness. But books, like people, die. They die in fires or floods or in the mouths of worms or at the whims of tyrants. If they are not safeguarded, they go out of the world. And when a book goes out of the world, the memory dies a second death. He winces and his breathing comes slow and ragged. Leaves scrape down the lane and bright clouds stream above the rooftops and several pack horses pass, their riders bundled against the cold and she shivers. Should she fetch the housekeeper? The blood letter? Licinius's arm rises. In the claw of his hand are the three battered choirs. No, teacher, says Anna, these are yours. But he pushes them into her hands. She glances down the lane. The rooming house, the wall, the rattling trees. She says a prayer and tucks a leaf of parchment inside her dress. Oh. Which I know was a long passage. <laughs> it is quite near the start, so it's not a spoiler. Yeah. That Licinius dies. He's literally only in it for that amount of time. Oh. I liked that line about a city being a manuscript. Yeah. That was good. I really enjoyed that whole bit. <laughs> I just love... I want you to read all of that because I feel like those are the themes of this because the the joy of learning to read the mm-hmm. the moment where reading has meaning mm-hmm. like the history and memory of words and the fact that a book is a physical object that can die yeah those are all of the things that this book is mm. like obsessed with i see um so i just love that passage a lot <laughs> <laughs> so yeah this is very much a love letter to stories and language. Uh, I want you to also just share quickly the dedication, because I thought you would like it. Mm-hmm. The dedication of this book is for the librarians then, now, and in the years to come. Oh, Which I think is very sweet. Yeah. And it's got all the good shit. Like, it has, as you've seen there, it has, like, etymology and, like, characters learning to read and write. But it's also got, like, translation mm-hmm. and so many libraries. There's so many libraries in this book. <laughs> There's literally a paradise which centres around a magic book. But anyway, Mm. we're getting ahead. I wanted to try and explain a bit about the scope and the structure of this book because I can't get over how much is actually in it. 
Dora himself has described the genre as a literary sci-fi mystery young adult historical morality novel. (laughs) And that's like the exact amount of hyphens that it should have. Okay. So in the book, Cloud Cuckoo Land is the title of a fictional ancient Greek story by a first century author called Anthony Diogenes. Right. Which, in this book, in the story, is recovered in 2019. Okay. Cloud Cuckoo Land does not exist in real life, but Diogenes did. Mm-hmm. And Dor credits his lost tale, The Wonders of Thule, with inspiring this story, which is already cool. Mm. So, like, he did have lost books that have been found. Yeah. Um, so, in Dor's world... Diogenes Cloud Cuckoo Land tells the story of a shepherd called Athan who wishes to escape his dull life and become a bird so that he can go to this floating gleaming city in the sky. But in his quest to reach Cloud Cuckoo Land he's turned into a donkey, a fish and then a crow. And he goes through all these trials and tribulations. Mm -hmm. But he never stops trying to reach the city. Mm -hmm. And that story is told to us in fragments in between each chapter. Okay. And so we're to understand that we're reading a translation of that long-lost manuscript, which has been eroded and damaged by time. Yeah. Because books can die. <laughs> and some of the, the fragments are really funny, so I thought I'd just read one of them out mm-hmm. so that people can get an idea. I've not really got a lot of analysis for this, so I'm just going to read things out. <laughs> so this is um, Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Diogenes Folio K. The goddess spiralled down from the night. She had a white body, grey wings, and a bright orange mouth like a beak, and although she was not as large as I expected a goddess to be, I became afraid. She landed on her yellow feet and took a few steps and began picking a pile of seaweed. Exalted daughter of Zeus, I said, I beg you, say the magic incantation to deliver me from this form into another so that I might fly to the city in the clouds where all needs are met and no one suffers and every day shines like the very first days at the birth of the world. What in the world are you braying about? asked the goddess, and the reek of her fish breath nearly knocked me over. I've flapped all over these parts and found no place like that, and the clouds are anywhere else. She was clearly a cold-blooded deity, playing tricks on me. I said, well, at least you could use your wings to fly somewhere bright and warm and bring me back a rose, so that I might return to what I was before and start my journey anew. The goddess pointed with one wing at a second pile of seaweed, frozen to the gravel, and said, That's the rose of the northern sea, and I've heard that if you eat enough of it, you'll feel funny. Though I can tell you right now, a jackass like you is never going to grow wings. Then she cried, Ah, 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 which sounded a lot more like laughter than magic words, but I put the slushy mess in my mouth and chewed. Though it tasted like rotten turnips, and indeed I did feel a transformation begin. My legs shrank and so did my ears, and slits emerged behind my jaw. I felt scales sliding across my back and slime crept over my eyes. And then it ends there. Mm. And we pick it up later. Yeah. So that's fun. <laughs> those, are, those are fun little interjections. <laughs> but what I love about that story, Cloud Cuckoo Land, is that it's a very clever common thread which binds together the five different narrators right. of Cloud Cuckoo Land. Okay. So the book has five main characters and they're spread across three timelines. Mm. So we have medieval Constantinople, where we had Anna, mm-hmm. who we met earlier. Um, she's a Christian Greek girl who lives in a convent with her sister and works as a seamstress. But she starts to dream of something more when she reads 
cloud cuckoo land. <laughs> and then we also have, on the other side of the city walls of Constantinople, caught up in the Ottoman siege, is Omir, who is a boy who's born with a cleft lip and cast out of his village as a demon. Oh. So... I thought I would have, I would give you a little tiny Omir passage just to get an idea of him. Because, frankly, there's so many voices in this novel that <laughs> I was like, I don't know who to pick to give you an idea what it sounds like. Because <laughs> none of it sounds the same. <laughs> At dusk they stop for the night in a boulder-strewn glade and the dogs swirl around them, testing the air for wolves, and Omir starts a fire, and Grandfather dresses and roasts four of the grouse, and the ridges of the mountains fall away below in a cascade of deepening blues. They eat, the fire burns to embers. Grandfather drinks from a gourd of plum brandy, and with the purest happiness the boy waits, feels it trundling towards him like a lamplit cart, full of cakes and honey, about to go round a bend in the road. Have I ever told you, Grandfather will say, about the time I climbed on the back of a giant beetle and visited the moon? Or, have I ever told you about my journey to the island made of rubies? He tells Omir about a glass city far to the north, where everyone speaks in whispers so they don't break anything. He says he once turned into an earthworm and tunnelled his way to the underworld. The tales always end with Grandfather's safe return to the mountain, having survived another another terrifying and wondrous adventure, and the embers burn to ash, and Grandfather begins to snore, and Omir looks up into the night and wonders what worlds drift among the faraway lights of the stars. When he asks his mother if beetles can fly all the way to the moon, or if Grandfather ever spent an entire year inside a sea monster, she smiles and says that as far as she knows, Grandfather has never left the mountain, and now could Omir please concentrate on helping her render the beeswax. Still, the boy often wanders alone up the trail to the half-hollow you on the bluff, climbs into its branches, peers down at the river where it might disappear around a bend, and imagines the adventures that might lay beyond. Forests where trees walk, deserts where men with horse bodies run as fast as swifts fly, a realm at the top of the earth where the seasons end, and sea dragons swim between mountains of ice, and a race of blue giants lives forever. <laughs> I just like it so yes. nice. <laughs> then in the modern day we're in Idaho we have Zeno, an elderly gay Korean war veteran who has had a new lease of life translating Cloud Cuckoo Land mm. in honour of the love of his life a fellow soldier who was obsessed with the classics mm. and now Zeno is helping some local kids put it on as a play at his town's local library Oh, which is I have a lot of time in my life for Zeno. He's very sweet. And I have a little tiny passage from him too, because why not? One Tuesday in October, all five fifth graders sit around his little library table. Christopher and Alex engulf donut holes from a carton that Marion has produced from somewhere. Rachel, real thin in her boots and jeans, leans over a legal pad, scribbling, erasing, scribbling again. By now, Natalie, who barely spoke for the first three weeks, talks practically non-stop. So after this whole journey, she says, Ethan answers a riddle, gets through the gates, drinks from the rivers of wine and cream, eats apples and peaches, even honey cakes, whatever those are, and the weather's always great and no one's mean to him and he's still unhappy. Alex chews another donut hole. Yeah, that sounds crazy. You know what, says Christopher, 
In my cloud cuckoo land, instead of rivers of wine, there'd be root beer, and all that fruit would be candy. So much candy, says Alex. Infinity starburst, says Christopher. Infinity Kit Kats. Natalie says, in my cloud cuckoo land, animals would be treated the same as people. Also no homework, says Alex, and no strep throat. But, says Christopher, the super magical, extra powerful book of everything in the garden at the centre, that would still be in my cloud cuckoo land. That way you could just read like one book for five minutes and know everything. Zeno leans over the mound of papers on the desk. Have I told you kids what Aethon means? They shake their heads and he writes it across an entire sheet of paper. Blazing, he says. Burning. Fiery. Some say it can mean hungry, too. Olivia sits down. Alex puts a fresh donut hole in his mouth. Maybe that's it, says Natalie. Why he never gives up. Why he can't settle down. He's always burning inside. Rachel looks off over the table, her eyes far away. In my cloud cuckoo land, she says, there'd be no droughts. Rain would fall every night. Green trees for as far as you could see. Big cold creeks. They spend a Tuesday in December at the thrift store hunting for costumes, a Thursday making a donkey head, a fish head and a hoopoe head from paper mache. Marion orders black and grey feathers so they can construct wings. Everybody cuts out clouds from cardboard. Natalie collects sound effects on her laptop. Zeno hires a carpenter to construct a plywood stage and wall off-site and in pieces, so he can surprise them. Soon there are only two Thursdays left and there's still so much to do, an ending to write, scripts to make, folding chairs to rent. He remembers how Athena the dog, when she sensed they were going down to the water, would vibrate with excitement. It was like lightning was ripping through her body. This is how it feels every night as he tries to sleep, his thoughts ranging across mountains and oceans, weaving through stars, his brain a lantern inside his skull, blazing. At 6am on the 20th of February, Zeno does his push-ups, pulls on two pairs of Utah woolen mill socks, ties his penguin tie, drinks a cup of coffee and walks to Lake Port Drug, where he makes five photocopies of the latest version of the script and buys a case of root beer. He crosses Lake Street, scripts in one hand, soda in the other. A silver blue sky is braced over the snow-mantled lake and the high ridges are lost in clouds, storm coming. Marion's Subaru is already in the library parking lot and a single upstairs window is illuminated. Zeno climbs the five granite steps to the porch and stops to catch his breath. For a split second, he's six years old, shivering and lonely, and two librarians open the door. Why, you don't look warm at all. Where is your mother? The front door is unlocked. He climbs the stairs to the second floor and pauses outside the golden plywood wall. Stranger, whoever you are, open this to learn what will amaze you, is written above. When he opens the little door, light spills through the arched doorway. Atop the stage, Marion stands on a step stool, touching a brush to the gold and silver towers of her backdrop. He watches her climb off the stool to examine her work, then climb back on, dip her brush and add three more birds swinging around a tower. The smell of fresh paint is strong. Everything is quiet to be 86 years old and feel this. Oh. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I love Zeno so much. Oh. He's so nice. I also love that, like, in my cloud cuckoo mm-hmm. lads, like, that's just such a cute, like, just the fact that they're saying it so, like, 
I don't know. You're so innocent. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I thought you'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now, like, this is literally just the, here's all the passages I thought you'd like, because I have nothing else to say. But on that same day, we have Seymour, who's a 17-year-old autistic kid who has been... Oh, this is how complex this book is. He has been recruited by an extremist environmentalist organisation mm-hmm. after a housing developer has destroyed the forest next to his home. Mm. And as an autistic child, that forest is the only place he finds peace. Mm. So this is an early Seymour passage, which I think shows a nice little uh, environmental thread that the novel has. Mm-hmm. He tries... When Carmen Hermaccio touches him with her poison ivy arm, he tries not to scream. When Tony Molinari's aerobi hits him in the side of the head, he tries not to cry. But nine days into September, a wildfire in the Seven Devils chokes the whole valley with smoke, and Mrs Onigan says the air quality is too low for outside recess, and they'll have to keep the windows closed because of Rodrigo's asthma. And within minutes, the portable reeks like Pawpaw's microwave when Bunny defrosts the freezer fajita. Seymour makes it through group math, through lunch, through fluency tubs. But by reflection time, his endurance is fracturing. Mrs Onigan sends everyone to their desks to colour their North Americas. And Seymour tries to draw faint green circles in the Gulf of Mexico. Tries to only move his hand and wrist not shifting so the desk frame doesn't go squeak squeak, not breathing so he doesn't smell any smells, but sweat is trickling down his ribs and Wesley Omen keeps opening and closing the Velcro on his left shoe and Tony Molinari's lips are going pop 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 and Mrs Onigan is writing a huge terrible A-M-E-R-I-C on the whiteboard, the marker tip rasping and squeaking, the classroom clock tick tick ticking and all these sounds race into his head like hornets into a nest. The roar. All his life it has rumbled in the distance. Now it rises. It obliterates the mountains, the lake, downtown Lakeport. It smashes across the school parking lot, tosses cars everywhere. It growls outside the portable and rattles the door. Black pinholes open in his vision. He clamps his hands over his ears, but the roar eats the light. Miss Slattery, the school counsellor, says it could be sensory processing disorder or attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity disorder or some combination thereof. The boy is too young for her to know for sure and she's not a diagnostician. But his screaming frightened the other children and Principal Jenkins has suspended Seymour for Friday and Bunny should make an appointment with an occupational therapist as soon as possible. Bunny pinches the bridge of her nose. Is that, like, included? Manager Steve at the wagon wheel says, You bet, Bunny, bring your kid to work so long as you want to get fired. So on Friday morning, she plucks the knobs off the stove burners, sets a box of Cheerios on the counter and puts Starboy DVD on repeat. Possum, on the Magnavox, Starboy drops from the night in his bright shining suit. Touch your ears if you're listening. Starboy finds a family of armadillos trapped in a net. Seymour touches his ears. When the microwave timer says 000, I'll be home to check on you, alright? Starboy needs help. Time to call trusty friend. You'll sit tight? He nods. The Pontiac Pontiac rattles down Arcady Lane. Trusty friend the owl soars out of the cartoon night. Starboy lights the way while trusty friend tears through the net with his bill. The armadillos squirm free. Trusty friend announces that friends who help friends are the best friends of all. 
Then something that sounds like a giant scorpion starts scratching on the roof of the double white. Seymour listens in his room. He listens at the front door, at the sliding door of the kitchen. The sound goes tap, scratch, scratch. On the Magnavox, a big yellow sun is coming up. Time for a trusty friend to fly back to his roost. Time for Starboy to fly back to the firmament. Best friends, best friends, Starboy sings. We're never apart. I'm in the sky and you're in my heart. When Seymour opens the sliding door, a magpie sails off the roof and lands on an egg-shaped boulder in the backyard. It dips its tail and calls, walk, walk, walk. A bird, not a scorpion at all. An overnight storm has cleared the smoke and the morning is bright. The thistles nod their purple crowns and tiny insects sail everywhere. The thousands of pines stacked against the back of the property, rising towards a ridge, seem to breathe as they sway. In, out, in, out. It's 19 paces through waist-high weeds to the egg-shaped boulder, and by the time Seymour climbs on top, the magpie has flapped to a branch on the edge of the forest. Splotches of lichen, pink, olive, flame orange, decorate the boulder. It's amazing out here. Big. Alive. Ongoing. Twenty paces past the boulder, Seymour reaches a single strand of barbed wire sagging between posts. Behind him is the sliding door, the kitchen, Papa's microwave. Ahead are 3,000 acres of forest owned by a family in Texas no one in Lakeport has ever met. Walk, walk, a walk, calls the magpie. It's easy to duck under the wire. Beneath the trees, the light changes entirely. Another world. Pennants of lichen sway from the branches. Snippets of sky glow overhead. Here's an ant mound half as tall as he is. Here's a granite rib the size of a minivan. Here's a sheet of bark that fits around his midsection like the chest plate of Starboy's armour. Halfway up the hill behind the house, Seymour comes to a clearing ringed by Douglas firs, with a big dead ponderosa in the centre like a many-fingered arm of a skeleton giant thrust up from the underworld. Parachuting through the air around him, blown out of the firs, are hundreds of little pine needles bundled in twos. He catches one, imagining it as a little man with a truncated torso and long slender legs. The needleman ventures across the clearing on his pointy feet. At the foot of the dead tree, Seymour constructs a house for the needleman from barks and twigs. He's installing a lichen mattress inside when a ghost shrieks ten feet above his head. Ee 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 Every hair on Seymour's arms stands up straight. The owl is so well camouflaged that it vocalises three more times before the boy sets eyes on it, and when he does, he gasps. It blinks three times. Four. In the shadow against the bark, with its eyelids closed, the owl vanishes. Then the eyes open again, and the creature rematerialises. It is the size of Tony Molinari. Its eyes are the colour of tennis balls. It is looking right at him. From his spot at the base of the big dead tree, Seymour gazes up and the owl gazes down, and the forest breathes and something happens. The unease mumbling at the margins of his every waking moment, the roar, falls quiet. There is magic in this place, that all seems to say. You just have to sit and breathe and wait, and it will find you. He sits and breathes and waits, and the earth travels another thousand kilometres along its orbit. Lifelong knots deep inside the body loosen. Oh, I liked that bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
It's just so many tones, man. I feel like Seymour's bit's like really fun to read as well because you mm. have like such a strong sense of what it's like inside his head. Yeah. But okay, you'll be glad to know we're at the end now. <laughs> uh, finally, we have Constance, who is a 10-year-old girl. She was born on a spaceship in the 22nd century Ooh, okay. as part of man's mission to flee the dying earth. So. I forgot about the sci-fi bit. Yeah. <laughs> this bit. This is what I mean. So it was gone... all making sense until right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I had taken you on this journey. <laughs> Aboard the ship, the Argos, is a virtual reality. The Argos. The Argos. Oh. Yep. Um, it's a VR library. Like Google if you could walk through Google. Okay. Right? So that's already cool. And it is apparently full of all human knowledge, including Cloud Cuckoo Land. Mm. So we have this insane story that spans, like, centuries and continents and planets. But it binds all these characters together. And the reason that I've kept Constance until last is because hers is the story that begins and ends the book. Right. So I thought I'd just end by reading the prologue, which now that you know all about the story, is genius. Okay. So this is The Argos, Mission Year 65, Day 307, Inside Vault 1. Okay. A 14-year-old girl sits cross-legged on the floor of a circular vault. A mass of curls halos her head. Her socks are full of holes. This is Constance. Behind her, inside a translucent cylinder that rises 16 feet from floor to ceiling, hangs a machine composed of trillions of golden threads, none thicker than a human hair. Each filament twines around thousands of others in entanglements of astonishing intricacy. Occasionally, a bundle somewhere along the surface of the machine pulses with light. Now here, now there. This is Sybil. Elsewhere in the room, there is an inflatable cot, a recycling toilet, a food printer, 11 sacks of nourish powder, and a multi-directional treadmill the size and shape of an automobile tyre called a perambulator. Light comes from a ring of diodes in the ceiling. There is no visible exit. Arranged in a grid on the floor lie almost 100 rectangular scraps Constance has torn from empty nourish powder sacks and written on with homemade ink. Some are dense with her handwriting, others accommodate a single word. One, for example, contains the 24 letters of the ancient Greek alphabet. Another reads, In the millennium leading up to 1453, the city of Constantinople was besieged 23 times, but no army ever breached its land walls. She leans forward and lifts three scraps from the puzzle in front of her. The machine behind her flickers. It is late, Constance, and you have not eaten all day. I'm not hungry. How about some nice risotto? or roast lamb with mashed potatoes, there are still many combinations you have not tried. No thank you, Sybil. She looks down at the first scrap and reads, The Lost Greek Prose Tale Cloud Cuckoo Land, by the writer Antonius Diogenes, relating a shepherd's journey to a utopian city in the sky, was probably written around the end of the first century. The second... We know from a 9th century Byzantine summary of the book that it opened with a short prologue in which Diogenes addressed an ailing niece and declared that he had not invented the comical story which followed, but had instead discovered it in a tomb in the ancient city of Tyre. The third, the tomb Diogenes wrote to his niece was marked Athen, 
lived 80 years a man, one year a donkey, one year a sea bass, one year a crow. Inside, Diogenes claimed to have discovered a wooden chest bearing the inscription, Stranger, whoever you are, open this to learn what will amaze you. When he opened the chest, he found 24 cypress wood tablets upon which were written Athan's story. Constance shuts her eyes, sees the writer descend into the dark of the tombs, sees him study the strange chest in the torchlight, the diodes in the ceiling dim and the walls soften from white to amber, and Sybil says it will be no light soon, Constance. She picks her way through the scraps on the floor and retrieves what's left of an empty sack from beneath her cot. Using her teeth and fingers, she tears away a blank rectangle. She places a little scoop of nourish powder into the food printer, pushes buttons, and the device spits an ounce of dark liquid into its bowl. Then she takes a length of polythene tubing, the tip of which she has carved into a nib, dips her makeshift pen into the makeshift ink, leans over the blank scrap, and draws a cloud. She dips again. Atop the cloud, she draws the towers of the city, then little dots of birds soaring around the turrets. The room darkens further. Sybil flickers. Constance, I must insist that you eat. I'm not hungry, thank you, Sybil. She picks up a rectangle inscribed with a date, February 20th, 2020, and sets beside it another that reads Folio A. Then she places her drawing of a cloud city on the left. For a breath in the dying light, the three scraps almost seem to rise up and glow. Constance sits back on her heels. She has not left this room for almost a year. Mm. And that is what we get at the beginning. (laughs) So, honestly, I know that was a lot. Um, I feel like that was just an overview of all the different voices. Yeah. But I hope that it came through how interlinked and obsessed with stories that this book is. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I feel like it makes you confront really morbid things like the climate emergency and literary censorship and war Mm. but the thing that I got at the end of this book and it is a long read is it is very hopeful and optimistic and fantastic like in the in the fantasy sense of the word. I mean that's very much how I would describe all the light we cannot see so I think that I will like this one as well. Yes, I think um, that you will. And vice versa, I think you'll like all the light we cannot see. But, um, yeah, it's just, I really, I can't, like, that's the distilled version <laughs> yeah. of this book. There's yeah, so a, much going it's on. It's a chunky book. It's a chunky boy, and, like, the way that it all interlinks just blows my mind. Yeah. So, I very much recommend. I feel like it's up for lots of prizes this year as well, isn't it? As Which, it should be. Yeah, sounds right (laughs) yeah like i think what i like about it as well is it's a really clever book obviously you can tell all the little like references that it's Mm. building up even just from those extracts yeah but it's not like an up itself clever book yeah like it feels like a storybook when you're reading it Mm. and then if you but you could 100 percent write a dissertation on it yeah so love that nice Anyway, <laughs> thanks for hanging with us. <laughs> Let's talk about writing. Cool. So yeah, our topic for this week was just a question. It's, was English your favourite subject at school? Would you like to answer first? Sure. My answer is yes, <laughs> which probably isn't a surprise. But 
I was trying to think about why and I feel like it is because I had good teachers um, which makes all the difference so like my first high school English teacher was actually my mum's English teacher as Aww. well which I think is quite cute and yeah she had like a poster of like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet <laughs> on her wall and like so many photos of her cats <laughs> like so many photos what a vibe yeah Miss um, Crawford loved her my teacher for standard grade was Mr. Cowan, who was like maybe my favourite high school teacher. And my favourite memory of him is that he read the entirety of To Kill a Mockingbird out to us in a southern accent. Amazing. He wasn't great, it wasn't a brilliant accent, but I loved his dedication. <laughs> and it just made the classes so memorable, which I think is like. Like, that's how you get people to like whatever your subject that you're teaching is. I was so trying to remember um, what the book was that I was, like, that we read out in class that I was loving when it was Sandra Green, it was To Kill Mockingbird. To Kill Mockingbird, yeah. So, yeah, so that was my short answer. But I thought one thing that might be interesting to talk about is that I actually don't think high school English is a good example of studying English literature. Okay. <laughs> someone outside agrees yeah. <laughs> um, so for me all I remember about English is memorising, memorising memorising mm-hmm. English exams are just memory exams English exams are um, memorise quotes and write fast yeah so I remember helping my sister study for English exams and she was like convinced that she was going to do really badly because like she's a science person and she's like you're an English person you're good at it and I was like no like if you can memorize like equations and formulas you can memorize book quotes and the like quote-unquote correct analysis to go with it so I guess my point that I wanted to say is like I wish that English classes in school could be more like uni English lit classes where it's about like yeah you sort of learn about like the context and the history and maybe like some biographical stuff and like you you maybe have a bit of a like maybe this is what this means Mm. like but it's more about a discussion and it's like what do you think this quote means like you know the what that whole classic example is like why did the author make the curtains blue yeah and it's like okay but actually like let's talk about it and ask why and I just feel like it would make English better and I feel like I know so many people who didn't like English at school but who actually really like reading and like and or liked English at uni because they like had to take it or and they actually really liked it um I know not everyone can go to uni that's not my point but like I don't know it It bugs me like I liked English at school but it just it's not the same it's it's not what I wish it was now that I know a good English class I have so much to say about that yeah okay Um, apparently this is an episode where I have lots to say okay because this question was provoking for me yeah because it was English your favorite subject at school my answer is yes and no mm-hmm I think it was always the subject I had the most natural aptitude for, which made it easy. Yes, so same for yeah. me. Yeah. But I totally agree with you. The way that it was taught and assessed at school often meant that I didn't like it because I didn't see how the lesson plans and the assessments, like the exams, 
matched up with the skills that we were supposed to be getting from it and mm-hmm. that frustrated me yeah i think that there's a reason that people have like the trope of like the emotional support english teacher <laughs> and it's because your english teacher makes or breaks your english class yeah because the true. syllabus is wrong <laughs> yeah also i want to point out i don't know if this was the same in your primary school education mm-hmm. but we had when i was very little reading is one subject and language skills was another. Yeah. And for the the language skills, we'd use these like Nelson skills exercise books. Mm. They were like these little yellow exercise books. And you had to be it was like you it was like comprehension questions. You'd like read a passage and then answer questions about it. Right. Or there'd be like grammar exercises. Yeah. And it was really boring. Yeah. Like all the stuff in it, a lot of it was non-fiction passages because you were like to pick out information or whatever. Yeah. And because of a, like, a lack of resources, I guess, at my school, if you were good at a subject, you were handed a textbook and told to work through it. Mm. And so the, so I didn't really have English teaching until I got to high school. Yeah. Which I think is flawed. Yes. Anyway, when I got to high school, um, I, as we know, fell in love with physics. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a really good physics department. So I think if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said that was my favourite subject. Mm. But I think that was because that felt like a whole world opening up because we didn't have, like, a science programme in primary school. Yeah. So I was like, whoa, science, this is cool. Yeah. I think I was a bit like that with music as well because I did Mm. really like music when I was at school. But I feel like I probably enjoyed the content of English studies more because I loved reading. Yeah. Also, my emotional support English teacher was my physics teacher, <laughs> not my English <laughs> teacher. So, but I did have some amazing English teachers. My first high school English teacher was Mr. McWilliams, who was the head of the department, and he was also the only male English teacher in my mm. school. And he was—he read the whole of Bridge to Terabithia out to us, oh. and he cried. Yeah, and I was like, "This man gets it." Mm. And yeah, like I had so many. I had one woman for hire who was like super Glaswegian and she wore these like giant hoop earrings (laughs) and like she seemed a little bit chavvy for lack of a better word yeah and she'd like come in she'd be like all right guys here's little gin today but she was so intelligent and I loved that too I was like this is the role model I need in my life (laughs) so yeah I would always be buzzing to go and like read the stuff but I do feel like the whole time with like timed essays especially I felt like I was just being assessed on how quickly I could write without my hand cramping yeah that really ruined English studies for me yeah and same with you like just learning quotes I was like like English was probably the subject I studied least because I was like I'll just go in the exam and wing it it's fine yeah I think I just had a lot of cue cards and was like that quote that analysis Mm -hmm. cool that's me uh, yeah, um, once you've done the critical thinking once, you yeah. never thought critically ever again. Yeah. But I will say that when I got to advanced higher, which is essentially like the level before uni, yeah. I was obsessed. Yeah, that was the same for me. Like, I, because I even went to college to do advanced higher, so it was like a totally different environment. And we had to write like a dissertation, yes. which I think now, like, how many thousand words do you think that was? Because it must be nothing compared to essays that we're used to writing. I feel like now. my dissertation at school was maybe like three, four thousand, yeah. maybe five thousand. That's words. what I'm thinking. So I'm like, like a, like a uni essay. An, yeah, but like that was the first time I ever. It was the first time I ever got to pick a book. Like I could just pick whatever Same. I wanted, and I could write about whatever I wanted. And I'm like, okay, that's so cool I wish you got I know that's harder to grade 
for like a high school because the mm. amount of marking that has to be done by the SQA but like think how much people like I just imagine people would enjoy it more and like get more out of it if you could do that at school like write about whatever you wanted a hundred percent I feel like if they could even find like a question that you could apply to loads of different books or something yeah I just because I loved what was your dissertation on I loved doing my dissertation my advanced higher one um it was on the catcher in the rye and the virgin suicide oh my god um (laughs) and it (laughs) (laughs) that's so you and it was about like unusual narration style Ah. i actually think it was a really good good essay i want to read it again because i actually really liked it that's but yeah that's very difficult like i was like i'm an edgy teen (laughs) i started off doing mine really edgy because i was gonna do it on irvin welsh Mm. um but i because i love train spotting but then I got halfway through filth and I was like, I'm yeah. too young for this, can't cope. Yeah. Like, I was 17, but I was like, mm, no, it's too much yeah. for me. And my other advanced hire, like, the books that mm. we studied, like, as a class was um, two Tennessee Williams ones. Same. And I'm just like, oh, so good. Sweet Bird of Youth, man. Yeah, Sweet Bird of Youth and Streetcar was That's what, what we, we did. did. Yeah. And we got to watch Streetcar, which was yeah. a treat. Same. Um, <laughs> but oh, my... Brando. Oh, Marlon Brando. Anyway. I literally, I remember going into that class and my teacher was like, it was three, we were three girls, and the teacher was like, okay, ladies, so I'm going to show you this film. You're going to have some complicated sexual identity issues after you watch this film. <laughs> she literally said that to us. She's like, because we were all quite like good pals by that yeah. point. She's like, you're going to have complicated issues with your sexual identity after you watch this, because this is not a good man, Yeah, you are going to be in love with him. Yeah, same. And because we watched the Sweet Bird of Youth adaptation as well. Is it Paul Newman? Did I make that up? I I just didn't watch Sweet Bird of Youth. I don't know. But anyway, it was similar vibes. (laughs) Anyway, I ended up going to child narrators for my dissertation because I was just Mm. like, after Streetcar, I needed something sweet. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Is that that us? I think so. I just, I was like, (laughs) what a tangent, but... Um, but yeah, I loved that the question was, did you like English at school? And I was like, I have to make a point. Yeah, same. I was like, there's things I need to say here. <laughs> yeah. Because I like, I I don't know, I, there's bits, like I remember doing like Shakespeare, like, you know, those fun lessons where like you sort of learn, like I learned that Shakespeare like made up like the green eyed monster. And I'm like, those are cool things I remember from, but I don't think, like I maybe used that in an essay, but like. I, I don't know if I did. Like mm. I'm just a bit like, oh, just wish you could get some more out of high school English. I feel like you don't get much out of it if you're not a reader already, which is a bit of a shame because it should be like encouraging you to read. Whereas instead, I found a lot of like my like peers would be like, well, I didn't like that book that we read for English, so all reading is bad. Like, yeah. Also, why do they pick some real shit books? They pick depressing books the as well. The Cone Gatherers. Have you ever read, had to read The Cone Gatherers? I don't know. My god, it is the worst book that I've ever read in my entire life. Yeah, we had to read Brighton Rock by Graham Greene, which I really didn't... Like, it was just so boring. And, like, I remember we had to read a really disturbing poem as well about, like, like little boys who, like, smashed, like, bird's eggs or something, and they're, like, really rare birds, and it was, like... 
well, I don't even know what that metaphor was. I just I didn't like it. We had to read. <laughs> oh, is it Midterm Break by Seamus Heaney, where he like finds out his wee brother's dead or something. Oh, we had to read that, yeah. and I was like, "What is this?" Yeah. Also, this one is a book that grew on me later, but I just I feel like trying to make like fifteen year olds or whatever read it was a mistake. But the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner, which we read at uh, uni. I only did that at uni. So. We did it in fifth year, mm. and. That's, it is a interesting book. Quite a tough one. But for... it is a tough read. It's yeah. like the language is really tough and I just thought like what what the fuck? Hmm. So Yeah. Anyway. Well <laughs> Don't read the Cone Gatherers. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is the first time I've really slammed a book on this podcast, but, <laughs> yeah, but don't waste your time. <laughs> Do you have a quick fire favourite? Yeah, I do. My quick fire favourite this week is a song. Mm-hmm. It is Romeo and Juliet by Peter McPoland. Obviously inspired by the Shakespeare play. And it's just this really like sweet love song where McPoland compares himself to Romeo singing to his Juliet, who's like in her bedroom. Um, and I just like that it feels like modern like there's lines about like her being like on the phone and stuff mm. but like he still uses lines that slightly feel like they could have been in like the play so for example you've got there's not really like a defined sort of verse chorus bit but the most sort of chorusy bit of it is i'd say oh i love you to my juliet if you only knew i'd kill for you i am for you i am just who you need me to be Let's get down and let's grow old. This fire escape is getting cold. I love that dress. I love the rest of all that you've got going on. <laughs> so it has like a mix of like modern, like let's get down. Yeah. <laughs> but like really sweet, like old phrasing, like I am for you and stuff. Um, I always think it's a cute detail. And I also just wanted to read out my favourite lines, which are... One day when the lines have all been read and memorised, I hope you mean it when you say that I am yours and you are mine. And I like that it has that little like meta element where like he's calling attention to the fact that this song is inspired by a mm. play. Um, so yeah, that's it. It's a cute song. I like that. <laughs> I also like that it's got that kind of like, not strict, but like kind of am- iambic pentameter yeah, vibe Yeah, it's going like on. slightly, it's not quite, but it's it's yeah, almost in that vein. Yeah, that's nice. What's your quick fire favourite? It's, well, it's an album, but it's a song. So I've been really loving the album Jubilee by Japanese Breakfast. I had never heard of them before. Oh, really? But I asked for no skip album recommendations. And my friend Caitlin really came through with this one. Mm. So just for background, in case anyone cares, Jubilee is Japanese Breakfast's third album. And their first two is all about grief. So this one's like finding joy and colour in the world after grief. Um, So it's very like high production, synth pop, good vibes. Um, It's very fun. And one song which I am obsessed with on it is called Savage Good Boy because it's a post-apocalyptic love song, and we know that I have a playlist of those. Mm. And plus it's got a really good drop right at the start, which just gives me so much serotonin. <laughs> the first lines are... It's a female vocalist, but the first lines are, I want to be your man, I want to be your savage good boy, which I just think <laughs> is powerful energy. Mm. And then, in trademark style, I will read out the second verse. 
I've got a five-year plan. I've got a pension and six condos, a billion-dollar bunker for two. And when the city's underwater, I will wine and dine you in the hollows on a surplus of freeze-dried food. I want to make the money till there's no more to be made. And as the last ones standing, we'll be tasked to repopulate. And as you, you rear our children, no, it's the necessary strain. They're the stakes in a race to live. <laughs> but it's all sung so, like, sweetly. Yeah. <laughs> that I just enjoy the apocalyptic vibes. I think of Japanese breakfast, like, the word, I used to describe them as vibey. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know why, it's just very, like... It's their chill background music to me, but in like a good way. Yeah, well, this is very like the most of the album is very chill, and then this one is extremely high energy, mm. and I appreciate that about nice. it. I don't think I know that one. You would maybe know it if I played it because we've playing it a lot, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> still going first for this segment or are we finally switching it oh let's just switch it man it bugs me (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) decision made in fact in fact no because your bit's always a bit more fun than mine so so i'll I'll go first and you can end on a high with your bit so um, okay sure what's your route my my route my geekery for this week obviously there's loads of etymology in cloud cuckoo land Um, So I could have chosen a word from that. But instead, I thought I would dive into a word that came to mind when I was reading it, which was palimpsest. I love that word. I have a whole bit in my thesis about that word. It's a very very exciting word. So for people that don't know, I'm like very much butchering this, but like Mm. in literature studies, a palimpsest is like a text which has many layers of other texts in it, either literally or through meta-references or just in its influences and what it's answering to. So I feel like Cloud Cuckoo Land obviously is very concerned with the idea of being a text that is written over and over again, um, one story layered on top of another. Mm -hmm. So the etymology of palimpsest. (laughs) Palimpsest is a noun which means parchment from which earlier writing has been removed to clear it for new writing. It is from the Latin palimpsestus, from the Greek palimpsestos, which means scraped again. Palin means again or back. Um, But then you have the verb adjective sen, which is like to rub smooth. So when you put back and to rub smooth, you get palimpsest. And I just think it's really cool. I think it's a really (laughs) cool concept of like, I think something that comes up in Cloud Cuckoo Land a lot is the idea of paper being like a luxury and a scarcity mm-hmm. because obviously like back in the day in Constantinople you couldn't just get paper yeah and in the future when they're on the spaceship she's obviously making it from the nourish powder yeah and it's not something that we ever have to think about as like not having space mm. on a paper to write something down yeah but the idea that you'd have to like erase something to write something new mm. it's so cool yeah. <laughs> it's such a cool word that is cool the reason I'm writing about it is because there's a quote in Ninth House that Darlington says about how New Haven is a palimpsest, like mm. how the town is a palimpsest, and it's... Oh, I really like it. <laughs> you have that whole bit in there about how the town is a manuscript. Oh. Oh! <laughs> we love it. Yeah. 
Anyway, what's your insight? My insight this week's a little bit geeky as well. It is about words. It is about the name January and why that's a great name for the main character in 10,000 Doors of January. Yay! Uh, Because originally I was going to do something about like like why we use some month names as names but not others mm. because I just that was just a thought that I had when I was reading this book mm-hmm. um but when I read more into the name and meaning of January I just realized how clever a choice it was and I thought you might find it cool as well so there's a little bit in the book about why January's parents picked that name which does describe some of this but I think the actual passage is too spoilery okay um so I've like done my own research instead <laughs> to give it to you in my own words. Um, but basically, January's parents first look at the name Janus, which I thought was Janus, but it's apparently Janus. So I looked up Janus, and this is some info on him. So in ancient Roman culture, Janus was a god of beginnings, gates, transitions, time, duality, doorways, passages, and the rising and setting of the sun. Oh my god! Janus is often depicted with two faces that look in opposite directions, looking both to the future and the past. Janus frequently symbolised change and transitions, such as the progress of past to future, from one condition to another, from one vision to another, and young people's growth into adulthood. It's the coming of age. Yep. The two faces of Janus are also evident in the term Janus word, which is a word that has opposite or nearly or nearly opposite meanings. So like also what you'd call like a contronym. So the example that I saw was if you look at the word dust as a verb, it can refer to the removal of dust or the addition of it, like dusting icing mm. on a cake. And if this wasn't clear already, Janus is the origin of the name of the month, January. January. So yeah, it's just such a fitting name for a girl who travels through doors and who uses this like written magic which incites change. I'm trying to be a bit vague there. Um, it's also just a good name for like the novel because one of the recurring lines which I mentioned earlier is doors are change. So yeah, basically what was going to be like a fun fact about names ended up being just another cool detail about this book, but I thought you would enjoy it. I enjoy well. that very much. <laughs> I did not know about that Roman god. No, I didn't. And I think the reason that I didn't, which I was a fact that I also discovered that I didn't write it down, is that there's no Greek mythology equivalent. Mm, He's because like, it's like from the Roman calendar. Yeah, so it's like, it's just a Roman god, which is quite rare. Normally you get like the Roman and the Greek, but yeah. It's given me Gemini vibes. Yeah, because if you look at it, like I can show you a photo later or something, like he does literally just have like two faces. They look in opposite direction. I think they were on coins a lot, mm. his face. Yeah. That's so cool. There you go. Fun fact. (laughs) That's awesome. So that is us this week. If you have any comments or questions then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media which is linked in the show notes along with everything we've talked about today including the Infatuated Mix which has all the music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. Please do that. Bye. Bye.